Isn't it strange to think that among God's many wonderful promises, here he promises persecution? In John chapter 15, from verse 18, Jesus prepares the hearts of his disciples for the coming persecution. The cross would be the first. And in the first verse, he says that if they hate me, they will hate you also. Remember, this is on the heels of the previous chapter where he commands again to love. The Christian mark is love. And so that needed to be said first before this can be taught. What would follow for the men in that room and the early church would be marked by waves of hate and persecution that would continue to crash against the body of Christ, determined to sweep it away. Stephen, as we read in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7, uh, was the first Christian martyr in the, in the church, or at least recorded. And then Saul, the zealous Pharisee, persecuted, invicted, imprisoned, and, and perhaps even executed countless Christians. He became like a boogeyman almost. He received legendary status for his deeds. And he believed that he was doing it in the name of God. And that's a very important thing to understand. History tells us that if we extend it beyond the, the pages of, of the Bible, further into history, we read reliable historical accounts that every apostle was martyred for their faith. They died in direct line of service to the Lord, except John. And I believe he was spared so he could receive the revelation that we, um, the book of Revelation. For nearly 400 years after the, the post-apostolic church, emperor after emperor would bring his own brand of persecution upon the Christians who were considered pests in this idyllic Roman society. As we talk about it, let's be honest, many of us here if not all, have never experienced that kind of persecution firsthand and perhaps never will. We live in one of the, for all our problems, one of the most religiously free countries in the world. But we know the stories, right? We've read the biographies. We've read the, the newsletters. We, we've heard the testimonies. We know what's going on out there, at least on an intellectual level. But... To live a first-hand, day-by-day life with death and torture and persecution around the corner, it's a bit far from our personal experience. We don't often study the Bible thinking about that mindset or having that at the back of our minds. You know, I, I've mentioned this story before. I've heard a voice of the martyr's ambassador who was imprisoned just the other year, 13 months in prison, and, uh, and when he was sharing his testimony, he said an interesting phrase that I've never thought about. He said, the doctrine of persecution. Yeah, I, I never thought about it as a doctrine, a subject of teaching. 
like the doctrine of salvation or the doctrine of Christ, what does our holistic understanding of the scriptures say about this specific subject? It's worth exploring. Does the Bible teach us specific things about persecution and how to live with persecution? Well, yes, it does, quite a bit. And we come to our text this morning in John. Knowing what persecution is, what does Jesus tell us about it here in this chapter? So let's read it together. We'll pray and dive into it. From verse 18 of chapter 15. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I have said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had no sin. But now that there is no cloak for their sin, he that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and the Father. For this cometh to pass, that the world might be word might be fulfilled, that it was written in their law. They hated me without cause. But when the comforters come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, who proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me, and you also shall bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Chapter 16. These things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. The time cometh where they kill you will think that he doeth God service. Let us pray. Lord, we deal with this eye-opening subject of persecution, what it truly means to carry your name even to death. I pray that we may learn from this and apply it in a world where we are not persecuted specifically and, and that you may help us to, to be sanctified by what the persecuted church is experiencing. Amen. So understand that I'm not talking about general hardships. It is true that a Christian might uh, stand for his, his moral integrity, not go drinking with the other managers and therefore not get the promotion or not bribe and lie to get the tender and challenges or, or difficulties might come because of your Christian integrity. The Lord sees that, and there is reward in heaven for that, but that's not quite what we're talking about today. Certainly, there's some principles of persecution we apply to our lives, but I want to deal with the subject proper today. For the disciples, persecution meant one thing, social exile and even death simply for believing in Jesus, nothing else. How can we learn 
to respond to a society that hates the name of Christ. We must remember that also that persecution are not isolated incidents. The people in these countries don't live their life the way me and you do, and then, uh, persecution, and then go on living normally. A Christian in that society has to do everything that we do as, as, as growing, sanctifying Christians. Read our Bible, pray, gather with God's people, raise our children in a godly way, live obedient to the, to the word. And on top of that, fear persecution. How does it affect their marriages? How does it affect their day-to-day life? Well, I think here in Jesus' words, we have some guidance here. Let's read from verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. So to understand what should we do with persecution, firstly, we can remain separated. I'm saying us and not they, because certainly we are part of the church. We can remain separated. You see, what it's essentially talking about there is that the the rule and the mind of a holy God has always been at odds with sinful, rebellious mankind. That we read about here is basically popular opinion. The majority rule, not saying that all opinion (laughs) is bad, but for an unbeliever, what other option is there but to believe what everyone else believes? Even if, if it is a new and fresh idea, there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> they give names, new names to old beliefs. If everyone agrees something is now suddenly true and right, then everyone somehow in a circular way becomes obligated and mandated to believe that that thing is good and right. Their entire worldview and their moral compass then becomes this fickle, shifting, easily influenced belief system. And I speak confidently of this because I was there. I come out of this firsthand. No wonder a Christian then is called by God to separate themselves from this kind of thinking. In our society, we apply this to entertainment, to the friends we, we surround ourselves with, to the places we visit. But what about the persecuted church? Imagine what this is like for them. You see, we are commanded to be separate in other passages, but here it's the context of persecution. Let me illustrate this from history. In pagan religions, such as the the Roman pantheon and and, uh, and the Greeks, or in more modern times, religions that are sanctioned by the government, we see that in the Middle East, the entire society is ingrained with this religious ideology. It permeates every level of culture. That is why a Christian is called to be separate in a society like that. It's not It's not an indifferent society. It's a society, entertainment, social structure, education, medical system, directly opposed to the Christian worldview. In Rome, Christians were considered criminals because the belief in Christ meant that they would not 
worship other gods. And to them, that was so foundational to, to morality, they accused the Christians of a crime of, of anarchy for not worshiping the Pantheon. How, how can you not? You, you're going to throw our entire society off its hinges if you don't do this. We've been doing it forever. How can you not do this? And they accused the Christians of a crime. They were actually logical people. They said, well, to believe in this Jesus, there's nothing intrinsically bad here. But because they won't worship other gods as well, they're messing with everything. <laughs> they were accused of anarchy. Imagine that. That's crazy. And, and it was actually this, this festering pot of misinformation and, and it fuels hatred for the Christians. One of the, the, the rumors that, that added to the persecution was that they heard about communion. This is the, the body which was broken for you. This is the blood, which is the new covenant. And they said, they're eating people. And Roman women would abandon their unwanted babies on the side of the road to have them die of, of the elements and of starvation. And a Christian knowing the sanctity of life, would very often take those children in and care for them. And they say, they're abducting babies and they're eating them. This is true. This is real history. And that fuel cause to arrest and persecute Christians. The first apologists, the first people to defend the Christian faith actually came out of this. You guys are talking nonsense. Sorry, I went off on a bit of a tangent there. But it illustrates to remain separated in, in a way we cannot imagine in our society. The next one, remain humble. Verse 20, remember that the world that I said unto you, the servant is no greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And this is the verse I look to when I say, that I think this is a promise. He said it to Peter in chapter 13 after, um, before washing the disciples' feet. He said it there in service, emulate me in doing this, but you're also not greater than me in what is going to be done to me. Not every individual Christian will experience persecution, but, but the universal, the unseen church, the church with a capital C, will always and has always been persecuted to some degree. If we comb through the pages of history, it has never gone away entirely in human history. This is what motivates us to remain humble. And this is what motivates a Christian in persecution to not become self-righteous with, with righteous oh, anger. Oh, just, just hate them that persecute me. When temptation to reason our suffering away comes. It was essentially persecution, again, that led Jesus to the cross. And God's sovereignty used that and died for our sins there in his great unending love. But then, should we not be willing to give up our short, temporary lives for his eternal glory? After all, the servant is not greater than his master. Remain hopeful. At the end of verse 20, it says, and if they kept my saying, they will keep yours also. There's a, there's a small ray of, of light there. 
here we read that, that not everyone denied. And that's true. Not everyone refused. Some did listen. Some did believe. The prophet Isaiah, he was called by God. He ministered to the nation of Israel for almost 60 years. And we're told he was sown in heart. In fact, many prophets of the Old Testament were also martyred by their own people. God said to him, they will not listen. Go, but they won't listen. As a nation, your words will have no immediate The book of Isaiah was actually written for a future generation, the generation in exile, who did heed his words. But in his entire lifetime, there was nothing. <laughs> So we obedient, regardless of the results, we should be. But the first sermon Peter preached, after this comforter has come that Jesus talks about, 5,000 people got saved. Well, how many more since that day? It's 2,000 years later. Amidst persecution, there will always be people who hear and believe. And so we must remain hopeful and then remain Christ-centered. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. So it's interesting how he says, these evils that will be done unto you, it will be done for my name's sake. That the persecutor would believe, I'm harming the church, I'm instilling fear in the church, I'm, I'm intimidating them. And it's like a knot that the more you pull, the, the tighter it gets. I, I don't know what the knot is called. Uh, Alex would know, ask him, <laughs> that the, the more pressure and the more this wave of persecution crashes against the gates of the church, the, the stronger it grows. How should we see the persecuted? From the next verses, he goes on, says, from verse 21, all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. So living with persecution and the, and the principles that come with that is not is only half the story. We have to we have to understand why this is happening. What is the purpose that, that is being achieved here? The proof from Scripture. So the proof of the person and work of Jesus is first, verse 22. So he says before they came, there was a sin that they could not be guilty of. The sin of unbelief. Before Jesus came, it was spoken of, but the person was not known. He says, now that I have come, they have no cloak for their sin anymore. The sin was always there, but now there is no more excuses. The unforgivable sin that we read about in Matthew. I'm just going to touch on that because it's a great illustration of this, of this unbelief. The Pharisees saw Jesus in person. They heard the teachings from his very mouth. They saw the miracles that were done in the spirit, and they claim to hold to the scriptures which, which speak about him over and over and over, and yet in the hardness of their hearts, they still did not believe. 
So Jesus said, enough's enough. You've had your chance. There's no more forgiveness. I don't believe that we can be guilty of an unforgivable sin. If we repent, there is nothing that, that we can do where Jesus, where God says, no, even if you are repentant, I'm not going to forgive that. That's not possible. They did not repent. In the hardness of their heart, they held to their unbelief so fervently that they condemned themselves. But yet here is proof in the work of Jesus Christ. The next one, the proof in from the Scriptures, from this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that was written in their law. They hated me without cause. When Jesus was led to the cross, the Pharisees had arranged several illegal trials to, to judge him. They had plotted to kill Lazarus. The proof of what he was saying, the resurrection is true. They, um, they, they led him to the Roman governor who they weren't allowed to execute their own criminals. They had to get the approval of the, the Roman uh, prefect, which was Pilate. And he, he said, I wash my hands of this because for a logical Roman mind, he could see this man has not committed a crime, not a Roman crime, nor a Jewish uh, uh, Mosaic law crime. This man is being put to death. This man is innocent. Pilate acknowledged that. For an unbelieving pagan Roman prince to, to admit that is, is only condemnation of those who, who wanted him dead. Um, and the evidence is in their scripture. Proof from the testimony of God's spirit. He says, when the comforter is come, I will send unto you that he will testify of me. And we've spoken of the, the spirit before in chapter 14. We're going to revisit him in chapter 16. And then the proof from the witnesses of God's people says, you also shall bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So the disciples went on to shake the world and the early church did come under heavy persecution, but it was strengthened. It didn't magically produce right doctrine out of nothing or an understanding of God out of nothing. But even today, if a person is grounded in the word of God and in truth, then yes, it is purifying and it is strengthening. Sometimes I felt in my early walk envious of these people. I said, I want a faith like that. I, I, I want it to be robust and, and, and strong. But sadly, I'm, I'm not that I would wish persecution on myself. That's not what I mean. But, but I thought that that kind of faith was only possible if you are being persecuted. But the doctrine of persecution shows otherwise. Every Christian, no matter where, should produce and have such a faith that it would stand against the hatred of the world. As I say, the reality of us is that many of us will never face but is there anything that does not apply 
to us, which I've just read. No, everything does. <laughs> There's nothing we can say that only applies if you're being persecuted. And so I had it the wrong way around in my head. That this faith can be produced in any environment. And that when persecution does come, it's like a shield or a sword that because of this belief you're being persecuted, but at the same time it is also the, the, the foundation on which you stand and where you draw your strength from. Unfortunately, I don't think this is the case for all of us. Sometimes our faith and our walk with the Lord is so anemic and so paper thin because we're so comfortable that when we hold it up in defense, it flaps in the wind like a, a flag of surrender. Heard from, uh, in general, uh, pastors struggle to get people to help them with transport. I was speaking to Pastor Philip um, and, and how he had to learn to you're able, you're willing, you're, you're, well, you're able, <laughs> why aren't you willing? So I'm speaking generally now, but imagine this kind of mindset. Well, I, I think my Saturdays are just too important, and well, I've, I can't really commit to that, I've, I've got other things going on, um, but I would die for Christ. <laughs> if, if that is a general mindset. I'm not saying we all have plans and things. I'm saying if that's your general mindset, don't you agree that there's some disparity? If you walk with God and live out your faith and worship in such a way that if ever men came knocking on your door with handcuffs and a black bag to put over your head and carry away because you're a Christian, if that day ever had to come upon you and me, would we be ready? In chapter, in chapter 16, this is the purpose. This is the whole purpose of what Jesus was saying. These things I have spoken unto you that you should not be offended. When it happens, that you should not be surprised. You should not be, you should not think, well, hey, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> that you should be ready for it. Even if the day never comes for us, we should be ready. I want to read 2 Timothy chapter 2 as the conclusion. Verse 12. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he shall deny us. So here's the question we will answer if we came to it. How adequate is our faith to fend off? the worst that this world has to give. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you teach us about persecution. We, you teach us that, that persecution proper is something that applies to us here in this free society, that we should live as though it is upon us. And we should not be envious of faith that is deeper and stronger than us. We do this in your power, Lord, and we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.